Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone Hi, I hope everybody's having a great day It's beautiful up here in Upper Westchester And this is MJ Network, and I'm your host, Fran Lewis MJ, in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce Who started me on this road to Blog Talk and I am so excited. The author of All We Buried is here, Elena Taylor, and she's going to tell you more about interim sheriff Beth and what she went through becoming a sheriff trying to follow in her father's footsteps. So good morning. How are you? And so glad that you're here. Good morning. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled. This is great. Now, this is a new character for me to learn about, and I take it that you're not done with her. You're going to bring her back more, right, I hope? I am, yes. <laughs> I hope to have news yeah, got about that a date soon. <laughs> so tell us about Beth and how she became sheriff of Lake Collier, Washington, because basically she had other plans, didn't she? She did have other plans. So Bet Rivers um, grew up in a tiny little town um, uh, of Collier, Washington, and her father was the sheriff, and his father was sheriff before him, and his father was sheriff before him, and that goes back several generations to the origins of the town, and so Bet has always sort of known that she will eventually take over the reins um, and become the sheriff of Collier, so she, but she kind of wants to have her own path. She wants to have her own life and her own experiences. And her her father has, is a war veteran, and she felt like he just had a lot of knowledge um, that she couldn't learn just being his deputy. So she finishes school, finishes high school, and goes off and um, moves to Los Angeles, which is of course a huge change from her tiny little town of a thousand people. And she goes to L.A., and she goes through the police academy, and she becomes a patrol officer, and she wants to become a detective and is ready to become a detective in Los Angeles. And she gets a phone call from her father um, that he is ill, and she he wants her to come back and be interim sheriff for her um, while he is undergoing chemotherapy. So she agrees because, of course, you know, her father's asking her, and she he's never really depended on her to do something like this, and so she just feels like she has to um, come when he calls. So she arrives in town and um, takes over the role as interim sheriff and assumes that it's going to be short-term, that he's going to recover, and he does not. And all of this happens before the book starts, so I'm not giving anything away. So now mm-hmm. she's faced with a really big dilemma, which is um, does she stay and 
have to fight to keep the seat because it is an elected position, and so she has to um, wait and see uh, if she can win the um, election. Or does she want to go back to Los Angeles and sort of pick up where she left off with the life that she sort of anticipated she was going to have? So that's how she comes to be the sheriff, the interim sheriff, um, at the start of All We Buried. Yeah, I know she's a brave person to do this. Now, this is something that people go through, everyone. You know, you think about something that happened in your childhood, and the dream haunts you. So how does that dream in the past come into the present? Because we all, you know, you go to sleep sometimes, and you don't know that you realize it, and all of a sudden you go like, what was that that I was thinking about? You don't realize that. Yeah, and, you know, here's the thing about recurring dreams, and so that has this recurring nightmare, and... um but I'll tell you a little bit about how that came about, which is I have a reoccurring dream. And so, I mean, obviously mine is very different than hers. She has this dream about, um, so Collier, I should explain that the town of Collier, Washington is on a, a lake Collier and the lake is a very dark and mysterious lake. We do have several of those out in Washington state. I'm often asked about, um, because it is a fictional town, but I'm often asked about the realities of it. And the, all of the geography in the book is, is um, authentic to our state. We do have dark, mysterious lakes where people vanish. <laughs> so Bat has a, a reoccurring nightmare about um, a body being slid into the lake, um, and which she has had throughout her life. But I have, you know, I have a reoccurring dream. Mine is about being underwater, and it's, mm. it manifests in a couple of different ways. Um, my grandmother's house, when I was growing up, um, my mother's mother was on the ocean in Southern California, and it had a huge plate glass window, and it was lo- looking out on the ocean. And I had night. I had a dream. I wouldn't exactly call it a nightmare. It sounds scary, but I had a dream over and over and over throughout my life that I'm in her living room and I'm looking out, and the ocean has risen up and over the house, and I'm mm. looking out in through the window and watching like the fish swim by, and dolphins and everything that's in the ocean and I'm underneath that and the water has gone over me and I've had sort of variations of that dream my whole life and so I think that what really intrigued me is this idea of what's happening in our psychology that a particular dream comes back to us over and over and over again and I was I talked to it about I talked to a therapist about it one time sort of you know, like what what's happening that that this experience, and so what we sort of realized was that dream was showing up for me um, in a time of transition, mm. and so I think that there's a little bit of that for Bet too, in that that dream is also a signal that there's a transition happening in her life. So obviously that part's not clear in the book because it's sort of my backstory. It's not that mm-hmm. backstory. That's my backstory. Um, but I think that's part of why that idea of reoccurring dreams is very intriguing to me because I experience I experience that too. I don't know if you do. Maybe you have a reoccurring dream and you can relate Everybody to that. Everybody does. Yeah, I tried to get that one though. Yeah, no, I was in a I was in a car accident when I was seventeen, and oh. ever so often, yeah, I I think about what happened, and I don't know what really happened because basically, I was in the back of the car in the middle, and I, we were going to uh, my cousin, the the lady that was driving the car, the little boy on the side, and my my uh, friend's mother, and we were all going to South Wallsburg to buy stuff. I was getting for my mother, 
and somebody, we were going up, I don't even remember, and somebody was coming down, we were in a head-on collision, and my girlfriend oh, my died. Oh, my gosh. And she wasn't supposed <gasps> oh, to come. Sorry. It was really oh. a freak thing. She was not supposed to come. I was going to get the stuff for her, and she decided to come at the last minute, and I felt so oh. guilty, like, it's my fault. And oh. I had amnesia. And I had amnesia for a while. So I said to my mother, mm-hmm. maybe I should just keep forgetting stuff. Maybe what could I say? But, yeah, right. yeah oh. I was so it. And we never, you know what? I, I never remember. I don't know. She was coming up, down. We were going up. And it's just like the last thing I remember was the lights went out. So if you ever oh watch a gosh. movie, when somebody got the light, yeah, that's what happened. So I, yeah. every so often it bothers me. And I said, you know what? Thank God I lived through that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, what a t- horrible thing to experience. Yeah, I did, and I was a kid, and whatever, and then my cousin looked at me, because she was there, she said, what's the matter? I said, who the hell are you? I mean, who are you? I really had well, no idea. And yeah, then all of yeah. a sudden, about a couple of days later, I must have opened up my pocketbook and saw the list from the from the um, advertising store. Uh, and, that, and I was like... And that tr- and did that looked, trigger your memory then? Yeah, and I looked at her, I said, maybe I should start forgetting you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, wow. This is... This was interesting. Peter Malone is a geomorphologist. And what is geomorphology? And he decided to do research about this lake. This guy was really, I didn't trust him. (laughs) I didn't trust him at all. Can't trust those college professors. Yeah, he was sort of, I had kind of a fun evolution with him. He actually, in the earlier drafts, started out as an ichthyologist, which is someone who studies fish. Um, And I, you know, kept working with his character, working with his character. And I had had a, I love to talk to experts. Doing research is one of my favorite things um, as a writer. I love doing research. And one of my favorite ways to do research is to talk to experts in the field. So I had gotten in touch with a scientist at the University of Washington and I had some questions and I was sort of checking in with her of, you know, could she help me or could she point me towards someone? And um, so we, we started sort of a, a, an email conversation, and because of her and what I learned from her, I ended up changing what he did as a scientist and why he was there um, and the reasons for his research. Um, and so geomorphologist, um, geo-earth morph being changed, a geomorphologist looks at the changes that happen um, with the earth, and his area of specialty is he's he's sort of looking at how climate change and the impact on um, we actually can look at glaciers and glacial lakes to mm. see impacts of climate change. And so he's got that as a background. Um, but it was really interesting to me how my interactions with her as I learned more and more about his field, because obviously I am not a geomorphologist. Um, in fact, didn't even know there was such a thing until I got um, investigating and talking to her. Um, but I, it just became so clear that that was what he did and why he was there and what he was doing. And um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know until you find out that you don't know it, and which is why I love to talk to experts, because you start to mm. see – not just if, it's not just that they answer your question, but they show you what you should be asking about, and that's fascinating to me. Um, and I realized, oh, you know, she's absolutely right. He really should be um, a different kind of scientist. Um, 
But I, I, I love that you don't trust him. I also love how quirky he is. He's a very quirky guy. <laughs> yeah, I told um, you. And I was in academia. I was in academia for a long time, so I know how quirky um, college professors can be. So I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear you didn't trust him. <laughs> no, you see, I catch on to these things. I don't know why. Um, the other thing that I found interesting and scary um, mm-hmm. is that nothing grows in that lake. That's even yeah. scary. Fish and nothing. Nothing lives in that lake. And go like, oh, my God, and kids can't go swimming in there because they're going to get really hurt or sick or worse. So... Th- there, there must be a, there must be a truth to that somewhere that there are things that where they can't grow. So how well, do you, you know, it's very that? it's very interesting. Um, all of the um, lakes around here um, th- that the lake so the lake is um, what's called a tarn, which means it is a um, it's a hole left over from the glacial process, and the it's it's um, built in part because of this glaciation that's happened in this valley. And I should I should say, people who maybe aren't familiar, um, the book is set in Washington State, and the town is high in the Cascade mountain range. And we, we have a lot of glaciated valleys out here and um, things that are oh, kind of unique to the Pacific Northwest and to our area. And we really do have lakes around um, Washington State, which are incredibly deep um, and have very sharp sides. And so, for example, Lake Chelan, which is not too far Mm -hmm. away, um, it's the 25th deepest lake in the world um, and more than 1,000 feet deep. And the water can be crystal clear, absolutely crystal clear, but you can't see down to the bottom because it's deeper than the light goes. Mm. And so it can be very mysterious. The lakes around here can be very mysterious. And um, my lake is fictional, um, but it's sort of a combination of different lakes that exist around the area, Mm. including one, um, which is well known because it is considered dangerous to be on the water in the water um people vanish in this particular lake and are never found again um yeah right and um yeah there's a lot of great sort of mythology here in the pacific northwest you know there's all the sasquatch and other things but we also have this lake which um they don't know why there's speculation about oh they get People get caught up on, you know, submerged trees that have fallen in, that kind of stuff. But I, I find it really intriguing that, you know, there are lakes around here that people sort of go in and don't come back out. So that was sort of good fodder for my fictional lake. I'm glad I don't live near a lake. <laughs> They're beautiful, though. They're beautiful, though. I do live on a river. Yeah. I don't live on a lake, but I do live on a river. No, I, I have trees. I love trees. I can, I can look at trees all day long, and I have talked yeah. to the trees. Sometimes I even name the trees because they're so pretty. And they don't <laughs> help us. They're so beautiful. But when they look yeah. so sad in the wintertime, I feel bad. Well, now yeah. we've got well, that's, We have evergreens. <laughs> so ours manage to oh, stay green year-round. We have a lot of evergreens. <laughs> well, that's even nicer. We have a couple, but not yeah. really. So what yeah. happens when Peter, this is so cool, finds a body? in a canvas bag at the surface, and how does she proceed to get the body out of the lake and the girl in the bag? It's like, oh, my God. Yes, yes, right? So so she's kind of hanging out in her office, 
um, expecting sort of a normal, quiet day. Cause, and, you know, some writers have small towns that are just sort of fraught with danger and a lot of really bad things happening. And other people have small towns um, that are sort of idyllic that are then interrupted by a crime. And I, um, Collier, for me, is the latter. So she's, it's a relatively safe, it's a very safe, quiet community. So the murder, the, you know, when, it, when a violent death happens, it's an intrusion into that community as opposed to, you know, a, a, a dark, twisty, small town where there's a ton of awful things happening, right? My, mine is the latter. So she's sort of, quiet, you know, quietly expecting a, a, an easy day. And Peter Malone, our um, untrustworthy professor, shows up and says he's found, uh, found a body floating in the lake. So um, it, I'm not going to tell you how, but it does connect back to her nightmare. There's a connection between that and her nightmare, and we'll let our readers discover that. But um, So she goes to the lake, and Peter had found it floating while he was out in his boat, and he has hauled it up in the, very, the only beach um, on this steep-sided lake. He's managed to um, haul that uh, canvas-wrapped figure up onto the beach, and he sort of opened it up a little because he, he thinks it can't be real. It can't be a, a body. It has to be some sort of hoax. And then he opens it up and realizes, of course, that it's um, a woman that has been um, – wrapped up in this canvas and dumped in the lake. So now she's faced with a, a real difficult um, crime to solve because she, the woman has, you know, no identification on her. She's not, she doesn't even have any clothing. Um, she's floating in the lake. So they have no way of knowing where she went in. Um, and there's no way to know anything about her. And so she's faced with the dilemma of, not just figuring out who killed Jane Doe, but who is Jane Doe. And, mm. um, you know, po the police can sort of work different ways when they're trying to solve a, a homicide. And, you know, one is you investigate the suspects of the homicide. Mm -hmm. And the other is that you investigate the victim. Um, and you take a look at what was happening in the victim's life where they would have crossed paths with someone who had killed them. And so Beth is faced with her first homicide investigation as as sheriff, as interim sheriff, and she has neither. She does not have a crime scene, so she cannot start to think about who the suspects are, but she also can't, doesn't have an identification for Jane Doe, so she has to really, you know, has to work both a, a different way of saying, okay, what what is something slightly different that was happening in um, Collier that might be connected to Jane Doe and to this event that happened. So I really wanted to set her up for her first homicide investigation with a really challenging scenario where there was no simple way for her to launch into the investigation. So that's why I sort of threw a lot of challenges that she cannot, can't easily ID the victim and there also is no obvious crime scene. So it was a lot of fun to sort of make things a little challenging for her. Well, if it was too easy, I would have been bored reading it. Seriously. Yeah, right? You want like, things to be challenging. If, yeah, <laughs> if there's no conflict and if it's just some, okay, I got to figure this out, I'll be, I'll be like, wait a minute. Nobody does that except maybe Hercule Perot because he's grilly. He's brilliant. <laughs> or Monk. Yeah. I'm going like, if, she, if it was too easy, then, like I said, I would be like, oh, my God, that's that's ridiculous. That's far-fetched. And you should see some of the ones that I'm reading lately that are so far-fetched, too. Oh, so, no. <laughs> We have two characters. I like Clayton. Deal. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's got a problem. 
<laughs> Dale and Clayton are working with her, but Dale, he's got another he's got another agenda, doesn't he? So I don't yes, like he has him. a very different agenda. So Clayton and yeah. Dale are her deputies, and Dale is full time, and Clayton is part time. And you know, one of the things that I found really I find really interesting about small town policing is that um, there can be huge areas with very little uh, police you know, in charge or, mm-hmm. or uh, accessible. And so one of the other challenges that I wanted to give that is that she worked for a while in Los Angeles, where she, which is the largest police department in the country. And so she had all these resources and all these people around, and, you know, people could be very individualized in what they do. Um, and that's not what happens when you are a sheriff in a smaller community where you have to do multiple jobs, you have to wear a lot of different hats, and you don't have a lot of backup. And so I've given her um, her part-time deputy, Clayton, and her full-time deputy, uh, Dale, who had worked for her father. And so Clayton is um, on her side, but mm-hmm. he also has other responsibilities. And Dale would like to have her seat. So mm-hmm. here she's faced with her, her second-in-command wants to – take her job over. And, you know, on da- in Dale's defense, he had been the full-time shep- deputy for her father, for Beth's father. And so I think he felt like it was a done deal, that he was going to take over that role, even though Beth might have been the, the daughter and the Rivers, and, you know, mm-hmm. she's the person who, um, through family, it made sense to take over that job. I think that Dale felt like he deserved it because he had worked for her father in that full-time capacity when she had left town and gone off to Los Angeles. Um, But as you can tell, there's sort of that question of whether or not Dale is really qualified. Um, But then there's also the gender layer of is a community, even though she is Earl Rivers' daughter, even though she would be the continuation of that line of sheriffs, She's a woman. She would be the first woman um, in the position of sheriff, and how do people feel about that? So she's concerned about Dale potentially winning that election, um, in part because of gender. Then you have the added complication of does she really want to win? Does she want to go back to Mm -hmm. Los Angeles and pick up her life again? So it's very complicated for her. Um, But she has to wonder if Dale really has her back as they um, start to do um, their investigation or or if any sort of situation arises, she has to wonder if Dale really has her back or is he thinking about his own agenda. So, you know, again, trying to throw a little complication in Bet's life there that she's not sure who she can trust. Well, that makes sense because, after all, he did do the job, and now she comes out of left field, and he yeah. still sort of figures that the father doesn't consider me primed to be the sheriff. Why, you, why his daughter figuring, you yeah. know, that's well. What can I can understand, but I still didn't like him. That's okay. <laughs> so, so the character that I did like was Alma. Yeah. She's priceless, and she's very yeah. valuable to Beth. And also Carolyn, the coroner. At least they had somebody yeah. to figure out what the heck what happened to the body. So Alma <laughs> right. is there. Carolyn is there. They're they're helpful, but. Who is George, and what does he have regarding the Colliers? Ah, this is where the mystery gets good, people. <laughs> so George, yeah. You know, I love George. I love that character. Me too. Um, 
and I'm glad you love Alma. I have to tell you a quick story about Alma, and then I'll talk about George. So Alma, um, she's she she doesn't represent a real person, but she is a little bit based on a real person. So um, I just want to say that there really was an Alma in my life, a very little had some of the same characteristics. And I worked years ago for a theater company, and um, Alma was the woman who kind of ran everything on the business side of this little theater company and she had been there forever and I mean she was probably 70 when I started working for the company and you know tiny little thing big gray hair bouffant kind of hair and um, drove this giant Cadillac and was just a character and she she very much like Alma in the book, and Alma, um, you know, Alma has run that sheriff's station through multiple sheriffs, and she sort of sees it as her role to keep the sheriff in line, and work for Butt's father, and um, you know, now now working for Butt. And so Alma, the real Alma in my life, she was sort of the same way. It didn't matter who came in to run the theater artistically or who else was working there. It was kind of going to be Alma's way. <laughs> she was going to keep an eye on everyone else. So that, that's why I named her Alma, and she shares sort of similarities with the real person. Um, so George, so the setup of Collier is that the town was founded um, back in the 1800s, um, as a coal mining town, and Washington State is littered with coal mines and coal mining towns, and some of them are ghost towns now, and some of them manage to reimagine themselves as different things. Um, you know, they might be a tourist stop, or they might have been subsumed by um, a larger community, so there's uh, some that, that are now sort of part of Bellevue or part of Seattle that actually were originally small mining towns that just through urban sprawl get taken up. So I was very intrigued by sort of these um, these small mining communities and how they originated. So my very first um, Robert Collier, who came out and founded the town, his life was saved during the Civil War by a, a man whose last name was Stand, Amos Stand. And Amos Stand um, is black and Robert Collier is white, uh, but um, Amos Stand has saved his life during the Civil War. And so they come out together, um, and he helps, he helps Robert Collier found this small mining town um, up in the mountains of Washington State. And so he promises, uh, Robert um, Collier promises uh, Amos Stand that he can work for the family and, you know, and his ancestors in perpetuity, that he owes him his life, and he can always have that position. So there has always been a Robert Collier. Um, there's Robert Collier, you know, senior, and then, you know, junior, and the second, and the third, and, and that goes down in that family. And then there has always been a stand um, in in Collier, who works for the family, and so George Stand is the um, descendant of the original Amos Stand, who came out with Robert Collier um, in to live in that area, and he maintains all the properties and the buildings that um, the Robert Collier owns in the valley. So he's very invested in the town, in the community, in the 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 physical structures um, of the community. But what I love about George is he's a little bit um, 
how would I say it? He's just an independent soul. He's got mm-hmm. his horse. He rides his horse around the valley a lot to go from property to property so he doesn't have to follow the roads. <laughs> he can just ride his horse wherever he wants to go. And he lives in the original um, building that his great-great-grandfather had built that's kind of out in the trees. And so he's sort of that all-knowing character that knows everything you know, that's happening in the community, but he's also slightly outside that community. So he's a character that I I really, really enjoy, and he figures in the next book. So I'll just leave that there. (laughs) I was going to ask that because you have to bring George back. You have to bring Alma back because she's cool. She's my kind of person. Well, yeah, yeah I, I get to. I don't look old and gray, whatever. But I have a funky attitude, and you never know what I'm going to say. You also know. <laughs> you also never know what I'm going to do. My husband looks at me. You, you, when you, when I want to know something, I just no matter who I have to call to annoy, I'm going to find out. No matter what it is, <laughs> I'm going to find out. Yeah. No matter. How, I think that's how, a good characteristic. <laughs> it is to a point, which drives people crazy, but I don't really care. Um, I, I do it anyway. Now. One character that I'm, hmm, and the one that I really didn't like, okay. We have Dylan and Eric Chandler, and they mm-hmm. grew up with Bet, And mm-hmm. their father is gone. They don't care. How come? You know, you're not going to like these guys. Seriously. Yeah, um, that's an interesting way to put it. So um, Dylan and Eric Chandler <laughs> were um, childhood friends of Bet. And their father, Michael Chandler, actually served with Bette's father um, when he was in um, the military. So the two of them are veterans. And Eric and Dylan were as close as brothers to Bette. I mean, she lost her mother when she was very, very young, um, and and her father remained single, so she was a um, raised by her father. So um, Eric and Dylan's mom sort of was a surrogate mother for her. Um, Dylan is her age. Eric is a few years older. And so they were very, very close growing up. And their father has really sort of disappeared. But I wouldn't say they don't care. I would say that they are choosing to bury their feelings about their father disappearing on them. And it manifests in very different ways. And so, um, you know, Dylan has just sort of shut that part of his life off. His father's gone. Um, He has his own family now. It doesn't matter to him. Um, on the surface, this is what he's going to say. But that doesn't mean that there aren't sort of deep internal feelings about his father's vanishing. But for Dylan, it feels just more like an abandonment. And for Eric, who's a little bit older and remembers his father a little bit more, it is that sense of abandonment, but it's also he's sort of more aware of the loss of what it means to have lost this man that he had known. And so there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of resentment Mm. Uh, you know, towards their father that's been buried, um, you know, all we buried, right? There's lots of buried things in this book. And so both these boys really buried their anger towards their father in his disappearance. And um, it's not spelled out in the book, but he obviously um, suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. The father does. Mm -hmm. Um, And that his um, sort of inability to reintegrate in society has a lot to do with why he has vanished. Um, And again, that's not spelled out in the book, but what I wanted to capture with that character and with the two sons is how differently it manifests for both boys, Um, you know, what happens when a parent vanishes like that and leaves their life. 
and you know bet has lost has lost her mother at a very young age and so they're both all three of them are dealing in different ways with what it is to lose a parent um so i like that you say they don't care and on the surface they don't care but deep deep down down, right yeah there's a lot going on there that is buried um as reflected in the title i know it's hard to lose a parent it's really Mm -hmm. hard so now this part i think a lot of people would identify with because you never know you know somebody dies and you say that you, you think they're gone but she hears her father's voice and helps to guide her. So yeah. why is it important to learn who you know? She, why is it important to who put the babe body in the lake? But her father's voice, she hears it in her mind, and she's she's actually talking to him. He sort of yeah. helps her and guides her. I thought that was cool yeah. because people, that does happen at times. You think that somebody that's not there, and all of a sudden you say, "Well, what would they say?" I could hear your yeah. voice telling me, "This is what you should. I hear my mother every day. Read a couple of thousand books. It'll be it's good for you. Keep you out of the stores, and you won't go shopping." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that actually was um. There's some sort of interesting real life mm-hmm. things that happened while I was working on this book with my own dad. Um. So, a couple of things. So she, you know, she courses is her father's daughter. He's the one who has raised her um, since she was five years old, and her mother died. And there's always been the assumption that she would eventually take, pick up the reins and, and be the sheriff of um, of Collier. And one of the things I found interesting about her evolution is that she does leave Collier and goes to Los Angeles to make her own way, but she does it as a police officer. So mm. she does question whether or not she belongs in Collier, but she does not question the idea that she is going to be in law enforcement, which is interesting to me that it never occurs to yeah. her that she could have a very different life and not go into law enforcement, but it, that runs so deep in her. Um, and she saw so much of her father growing up um he would you know take her along on on things or he would share with her things that were going on in investigations and so she's very you know it's just such a part of her um but she is debating about whether or not to make that split in terms of being in Collier and so but her father has taught her all these lessons throughout her life which stay with her and she wants to simultaneously live up to his expectations and who he was in the community um, and be as good as him, um, which I think I think a lot of us sort of can look at our parents and, and we either want to be as good or we want to be better or we have that sort of what kind of role model were they. So she does hear her father's voice, and he he is so focused on the job, um, and she has starting to come to realize that she wasn't getting a lot of information from him about other mm. ways of being in the world, like how do you relate to people? He, she has no model for uh, an intimate relationship because her mother has died and her father never remarries. And so there's no model for her about how couples work together, for example. She doesn't necessarily trust um, intimate relationships because she had no modeling for them. Mm. Um, you know, her mother was gone if she was five years old. And so she does start to realize the sort of gaps in what she's learned from her father. But this aspect of being in law enforcement and this aspect of of, of protecting the community of sort of mm. upholding the of the law but most importantly protecting the community which is really how her and her father see the role um it's so much of her identity and she's getting so much of that from her father 
And some of this comes from my relationship with my own dad. We're not law enforcement, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm not a law enforcement officer, but my father was, was a teacher. Um, he was a lawyer, and he, but he taught law for more than 25 years. And I also have been a teacher. And um, my father and I used to have this joke with, that we shared a brain because we could really understand what the other person was thinking. We could finish each other's sentences mm-hmm. um, we could have sort of obscure references, and he and I would both know exactly what it meant. And it was a really unique bond um, that I'm very grateful that I had. Um, and so I did understand, I do truly understand what it means when you have that one person who gets you, who really understands you, and knows not just what you're thinking, but how your mind works, how you got there. And so that was a relationship that I had with my own father, and that. So my father um, ended up getting Parkinson's, and I don't give mm. uh, Earl Rivers Parkinson's. I, I give him cancer. But my father, just to give you sort of the strange combination of real world and fiction, so my father died um, just before this book came out. Mm. And what was really interesting to me was I was like doing final rewrites on this book about a woman whose father had died and that she's taking over his place when my own father dies. And it it was strange to reread stuff that I had read long before, you know, I had written long before my own father passes away, and I start to realize, oh, you know, this, I understand my own writing better now because I'm now in the same position that Butt was and her father has died. And I do hear my dad's voice, um, mm-hmm. obviously not in quite the same ways that Bet does because I'm not trying to solve a homicide, but I do hear my father's voice. And so there was sort of this really odd mix of, of true life and fiction happening, but I wrote this book several years ago um, before my father was even even um, very sick. And so that evolution was really strange to realize how sort of prescient that writing was mm. in that relationship about the loss of the father. So I understood the relationship because that was a relationship I had with my own father. But I didn't really understand the loss part until after he died, and that was mm-hmm. just before the book came out. So, yeah, that's my story about uh, her and her father and, and me and my dad. Um, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. I was in school. I was a reading specialist, and the principal came in and said, "You need to get to my office now." My cousin was there, and he said, "Your father had a stroke." I go, "My father oh. was fine this morning. We were planning, you know, another another trick on my mother. We used to do things that were like the two of us together, like two little kids." And yeah. he he did, he he was gone nine days later. Forget it. So yeah. Oh my god. But I still hear, oh, I still hear him tell oh. me. Yeah, I know. He would. Yeah. I could hear him tell me, you know, this is what you got to do to find that out. But you know, if you get in trouble, don't worry about it. I'll get you out of it. I got in trouble a uh, lot, which was fine. Oh my gosh. Because, yeah, he was my partner in crime. It was fun. So yeah, she goes. She runs the investigation. So why does she bring in Todd and CSI? And then all of a sudden, Robert Collier appears, and ooh, that got me worried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, one of the really challenging things about being a small-town law enforcement officer is you do have to wear multiple hats. 
Um, So as a sheriff, she also has to do things like fingerprinting and crime, you know, looking at looking at the crime scene. But of course, the reality is that crime scene investigation is a very challenging, a very specific job. And it has there's all kinds of new technology. There's all kinds of techniques. And it's really a a very specific skill set that people can study and and work on. And that's all they do. So for Bet, one of the things that she does and her father had done before her is that if there is a crime scene that's really complicated or it's a, a major crime, um, she can bring in a, a specialist to come and process a particular crime scene. Mm. So she has a relationship with um, – Ellensburg is a real town, so there are some towns that I reference in the book that are real, and Ellensburg is – a. Um, one of the larger towns um, on the uh, east of the Cascade Mountains. And, and so it's the closest large town to Bet, and it is a real town. And she can bring a crime scene investigator in um, from there to process a crime scene for her where the technology, where the equipment, where the skill set is outside her area. Um, and she also, you know, she and her deputies have a huge area. They've got... Um, campgrounds, they have the community of Collier itself, they have the whole valley um, that they have to patrol as well. And so she sometimes doesn't have the time um, to process crime scenes. And so she has access to um, to Todd to bring him in um, when she needs to. And Rob Collier, as you mentioned, so he is, I always have to double check, I think he's the fourth. <laughs> I think he's the fourth Robert Collier. And I call him Rob so that he is distinct from his father, Robert, Robert Collier, who also gets talked about in the book. So Rob makes an appearance. Um, he and his father have been gone from the Valley for a very long time. And um, their big house has been, you know, um, closed up but cared for by George Sand, and he reappears. Um, so there's also, you know, when you look at a small town and you're solving a crime, you, it's either someone who's in the community who's committed the crime or it's a stranger who's come in. And so I have given her, I have given Bet a lot of different suspects who either are in the valley or who have come in and their their timing to arrive back in the valley is a little bit suspicious um, that these people have all come back into the valley right when Jane Doe is found. And so she can look at all these, when she looks at the community and says, okay, what has changed in the last couple of days that may have a, a part of this um, homicide? She has multiple characters who have reappeared in town, and she has to wonder, well, what really brought them back here, and do they have any interaction with Jane Doe? So that's why I've given her a couple different people from her past have shown back up again. Well, I have to tell you, I'm sitting on my Facebook page here. People are – I'm writing a whole bunch of comments here. And there's a whole (laughs) bunch of authors, a whole bunch of really important authors that are saying they're going to check out your book. Oh, fantastic. We love hearing uh, that. I'm like, that doesn't happen very often, but there are a lot of people that are listening and are like, oh, my God, this is great. So I must be doing something right today. We both Wonderful. Thank you for that. So we have Bet, and she faces a lot of moral issues, and she really doesn't want the people of the town to know what's happening yet. And yet there's a reporter that's bothering her. So why does the uh-huh. reporter, you know, agree to hold the story? But why do we know that somebody else leaked it? 
which makes it harder for her too. We have about fifteen minutes. We're doing good. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank you for that. Um, yeah. So again, to throw a few more things at that to have to yeah. overcome. Um, so you know, police officers don't don't report on crimes that are um, ongoing. You know, when an investigation is happening, they they want to keep things to themselves, partly so they can weed out um, people who might say, oh, they know something about the crime, but um, the the police officer can tell, the detective can tell that they're making that up because they don't know certain things that have been kept out of the media, right? Um, and also, you don't necessarily want to tip your hand to the person who committed the crime um, of what you know. And you also don't want false information to go out, and um, you don't want um, the, the, the surviving family members um, – to learn something that um, maybe isn't true or hasn't been proven yet or is too awful to, for them to want to read it on social media. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why a detective doesn't want information about an uh, ongoing um, investigation to go out. So that realizes immediately when this um, reporter contacts her that this is really loaded for her. She's facing her, um, the election is coming up, you know, she's, she's got this campaign going, and that if she's portrayed poorly in the media, that's going to hurt her. And more importantly, if it interferes with the investigation in any way, if it, if it tips off the, the person who committed the crime or information gets out that she doesn't want, it's going to make her look really bad in the face of this election, and it could complicate the investigation. So you have all kinds of reasons why she wants this person quiet. But she also realizes that she kind of has to um, set up a relationship with her as a give and take so that she can get this reporter to stay quiet. And so she realizes, you know, sort of the promising of, you know, look, I'll give you an exclusive if you hold it for now is um, to help develop a collaborative relationship instead of an, um, one where it's against her, right? Um, and information does get leaked, and so, of course, there's the question of who's done the leaking and how did that happen and, um, you know, what's going on behind that. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed um, having an, an outsider who's sort of keeping an eye on that as well um, was sort of a fun way to um, sort of increase the stakes for her about her social position in the community, because Bet doesn't really think about that. She's hardly thinking about the election. She doesn't like campaigning. Um, she's not interested in her, um, you know, her, her public persona. And in some ways, um, Jamie Garcia, my, my reporter, reminds Bet that she does have a public face, too, and that she does have to interact with her public. Um, and so it, she's sort of forcing her to realize, oh, yeah, there's so much to this job. It's not just mm -hmm. taking care of the community. It's not just solving a crime. It's also that she is the face to the community. She, you know, it's her role to, um, you know, what information does the community need to keep them safe or that's accurate and true. Um, she doesn't want any false stories to go out. And so, so she really allows that to understand the whole public side of her job, which is not something that her father thought about either. So she doesn't have a model for that. Jamie's going to help her um, understand her public persona a little bit better. Okay, now we have two more characters. I, I'm looking at my paper here. I've destroyed this paper so many times. <laughs> I just keep writing. So 
We we have um, the parents of the person, mm-hmm. and she gets a weird feeling about them. And then we have mm-hmm. Celie. So what mm-hmm. happens to Celie, and why was this person? Why was the person killed? Oh, but now you're getting into stuff I can't give away. We that's don't why want, I said. That's we, why I didn't want to answer. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I don't know how to answer that without giving too much away. Okay. So um, I got a better question here. So when she finally finds, she says the items and catalogs them on a clipboard. How does she process when she finally figures out who did it and what happened? How does she finally process that? Because that's interesting because a lot of, you know, people that process cases, everybody does it in a different way. And you sort of said she has a clipboard, then she has everything, you know, cataloged or whatever. So how did you come up with that? Because that's really good. Oh, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, well, let me, um, I think the best way for me to answer without, again, without giving anything away, is, um, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, I love doing research. And I love talking to experts. And I have a, um, a homicide detective. Actually, he's played a lot of different roles. He's, um, you know, he's been in the military. He's done undercover. He's um, worked, you know, major crimes. Um, he's even worked at a university. I mean, this man has an incredible background. Um, he's been a homicide detective. He has an incredible background in law enforcement. And he is my expert. He's my go-to guy. And so the way I work with all of the police procedural stuff, because as I said, I'm not in law enforcement. You know, I, I was a theater professor for a lot, lot of years, so I am not a lot in law enforcement. Um, so the way that he and I work is I write, I write the book, and he and I are now starting to work on our, like, what is it, sixth book together, <laughs> seventh book, where he's my expert. Um, so I, I write the book, I write this manuscript and I do a lot of research as I go. And so I have a, you know, I, 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 I have nonfiction books on forensics and, and the homicide investigation, all that. So I have, I have resources and I write the book and then I flag all of the places where I have questions about police procedure. And I meet up mm. with him this on this last one uh, we met on Zoom that was interesting but usually we meet in person over coffee i meet up with him and i go through all of the places where i have her doing sort of specific police procedure and we have a little always maybe never um rating scale for the things that i've written so We'll talk about if it's something that a police detective would always do, then I really make sure that she sort of does that, you know, uh, you know, she would get certain kinds of things right. Then if they would never do it, and I have it written into a scene, and he says, oh, no, we would never do that, then I have to rewrite that scene, and he'll talk through how it would happen in the real world. And so I have to rewrite that scene to fit how it would happen. Then if it's maybe, if it's within the realm of possibility and I want to keep it for dramatic effect, we keep it. So so mm-hmm. we go through, um, and I'll go through everything that I can. And, but one of the reasons that I like to meet with him in person is oftentimes in our conversation, he'll tell me something that I haven't even thought to ask about, um, which is why it's so much better than just reading out of a book, because a book can't mm-hmm. add things. You know, it does a, a book. You know, a book can't say, "Well, have you thought about this?" You know, and so I'll have conversations with him in person, and he'll say, he might say, "Well, have you thought about this instead?" And he'll give me ideas 
that are exist in the real world of homicide investigation or in police procedures. And so that's how I go through um, all of my police stuff. So any errors are mine, because sometimes I don't know mm-hmm. to ask. I, I might think I have something right. Um, but so much of what I learned from him um, does end up in the book about how she processes things, how she mm-hmm. how she does things, how certain things work. So, yeah, that's that's how I do my police procedure. I'm glad you enjoyed that part. I did. Now, before I forget... Thursday, Marilyn Levinson, a.k.a. Allison Brooke, will be here for Checked Out for Murder. On the first, Emergency Powers with James McCone. On the fifth, Jeff um, Bond, Dear Derwood, I love that book. On the seventh, Circle of Dead Girls. On the 13th, an author that came out of nowhere, the author of Hunting Men. It should be interesting. It's a police detective. And on the 15th, Three phenomenal authors that are very famous, Charles Salzberg, Russ Clavin, and Tim O'Mara, third degree, with three of the most bizarre stories you've ever wanted to read that will scare the daylights out of you and give you the shivers. And that's what they intend to do to me. And that's just part of October. And I can't forget, on October 20th, the one and only New York Times author, Vincent Zandri, the girl who wasn't there. And he's He's amazing. So mm. that's just what's coming up a little bit. And, of course, D.P. Lyle, who writes for Criminal Minds and Law and Order, will speak two on November 2nd and November 16th. He asked for two interviews for two of his new books. And, yeah, that's so cool. So uh-huh. there's a question. I'm questioning out something because I don't want to give away what happened in the last scene. So what does Beth learn about herself after all is said and done? And which characters are you bringing back for me to read in the next one? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, I think that what Bette learns is that she can stand on her own two feet. Mm -hmm. I think that's really what she she learns out of all of this. And she comes to understand her own relationship with being the sheriff of Collier as opposed to her father's relationship with being the sheriff of Collier. And it's something that I continue to explore in the second Mm -hmm. book. And you can probably guess the characters we're going to see again. Um, Alma, of course, is there running the office. Um, George does come back for book two. I really love him, and I'm I'm glad that you do too. Um, Yeah, so he he comes back. Um, I also have some – oh, and we didn't talk about Schweitzer. She has her her dog Schweitzer. Schweitzer comes back. and so we do see, you know, the, all the, those characters come back. Um, then there are, obviously, there are new characters um, that you're going to meet for the first time. Um, and some characters who played smaller roles, Jeb Pearson, who um, runs the um, ranch out at the train yard for, he runs a, a facility to help um, boys with alcohol and drug problems during summertime. Mm-hmm. And then in the wintertime, he rents um, out to vacationers. And he actually plays a role in the next book. So there's a couple minor characters that have more page space in book two and also some exciting new characters to meet. This is really good. And when is this book coming out so I can put you in my schedule? <laughs> I will send you an email. I don't have okay. that information. Um, but fingers oh, crossed I'll be able to tell you something soon, and I will absolutely let you know as soon as I do. Good, because I'm getting too popular. No, seriously. <laughs> That's uh, a beautiful no, thing. As a matter of fact, yeah, I just um, two shows for after the new year. Um and R.G. Belsky, Dick, and um, 
uh, uh, John Land are going to start off my um, New Year with what's what's changed in the publishing industry and hopes for the future. We hope it gets better. And whatever oh, else wow. they decide to talk about, whatever else they decide to talk about, I just sit back and listen. I just don't have to say too much. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Okay. So where can everybody find out about you and your books? And I hope you're going to do another store tour for Cheryl. Cheryl's listening. And this has been fun. Let me tell you, it brightened my morning. I, that's for sure. Oh, it's been wonderful, and I would love to come back again. Um, you can find out all about me at elenataylorauthor.com, E-L-E-N-A-T-A-Y-L-O-R-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Um, and you can see links to purchase a book. It's available in um, hardback, ebook, and audio. Um, so it's all the different reader platforms that you might want to uh, see or his- listen to or read. And you can get those links on my website as well or contact any of your local bookstores. Yay, all these independent bookstores that are staying open and all of this, and they all ship Mm -hmm. um, for those of you that read hardbacks. So that's how you can find out about me. Well, I have one last announcement, and I'm so excited. I'm on, the, I'm on a blog tour, a tour with Rabbit Toys, and the first book review I got was not bad. Not bad at all. It wasn't great, but I really got a beautiful one this morning. And I read oh, it. Oh, yay! Like, so I, they actually, actually understood what I was saying. The title of the book is called What If. What if you live oh, in the world great. that I created? Would you be happier in the one that we live in? And it's like a Twilight Zone kind of book. I never wrote ah. anything like this before. I oh, just sat wow. down and wrote it. I wrote it out of nowhere. And she said, my ah. writing is fluid. The fact that the stories are short is what made her want to read the book right away, 78 pages. And I was like, I was so thrilled because people criticize everything you do. And sometimes mm-hmm. they say, you know, this is this started off broad, this is that. And I was like, this is a stranger. I have no idea who it is. All I know is I said, thank you so much. This made my day to let me know that I know what I'm doing because the next one's going to be called What's Next? <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> That's a great I haven't title. Just, I haven't decided yet. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's scary. It scared me when I read it, too. And I never read what I write <laughs> after I write it. I hand it to my editor and I can't fix it. But this time I actually read it, I go, oh, my God, that's not bad. But I want to thank <laughs> you so much. This has been fun, a lot of fun. And this book is great, All We Buried. And there were like five people that are saying, well, I send them the book. I go, go on Amazon and get it yourself. <laughs> I do. I give the books to, to the people in my building. Oh, that is so kind. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. It's been a blast, too. Everybody have a great day. The sun is shining, and it's 57 degrees. It's cold out. It's warm outside now. It's 30 to 20. (laughs) So everybody have a great day, and bye. Bye Bye-bye.